What happened to music that meant something? Like the Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Kotz. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today, on the world's only rock and roll talk show, a conversation with a man who promoted Sid Barrett's Pink Floyd and discovered, produced, and managed Nick Drake, novice author Joe Boyd. Plus, we are going to delve into a subject we've otherwise avoided but can no longer, our take on American Idol. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. This is a story we've been covering on uh, Sound Opinions, Jim. The Copyright Royalty Board just heard an appeal from the Internet broadcasters asking for some relief from those increases in the royalty rates that they are facing on May 15th. But it looks like Doomsday is a step closer for a lot of these Internet radio broadcasters. The Copyright Royalty Board rejected the appeal by a broad coalition of Internet broadcasters, the small mom-and-pop guys in their basements broadcasting, as well as Yahoo, Time Warner's, AOL, National Public Radio, uh, basically threw out their appeal and said, uh, no, we're going to go ahead on May 15th. We're going to start charging these new rates, which in many cases represents a 100% or more increase on the royalty rate per song, per listener played on Internet radio, which jeopardizes a lot of these small businesses. It jeopardizes the future of Internet radio. Should I put mean, them off the air. There's a chance that the courts will hear this and, and reverse it. It seems to be a slim chance. It seems like this decision was the final one, and it seems as if many Internet broadcasters are going to have to close up shop within the next month or two. It's really sad because Internet broadcasters are being treated very, very differently than on-air broadcasters having to pay three or four more times the Internet guy than the regular radio station would pay to air a song, and, and it's going to kill what we know as Internet radio. Obviously, it's a story we're going to stay on. Greg, with a little bit of Rage Against the Machine in the background there, let's talk about destination festivals. You know, it used to be that the festival came to you. The Lollapalooza was the big model in the early 90s. That spawned a lot of imitators. They would cross the country. They would tour with these day-long lineups of multiple bands. Now there are weekend-long destination festivals is what the concert industry calls them. You go to a different corner of the country, you uh, camp out or stay in a hotel there for the whole duration, and you see a lot of music in the space of a couple of days while they make a lot of money. Absolutely. You've got them dotting the country. I mean, you can basically go to any point in the country and find something within that geographic region that is going to be drawing a lot of people to see a lot of major bands. And they're competing. They're, they're all competing to have big exclusive acts that are only going to be their festival. We played Rage coming in for a reason. Yeah, absolutely. Rage Against the Machine, one of the big reasons to go to an outdoor, big outdoor destination festival this summer. They are reuniting at the Coachella Festival in California on the weekend of April 27th through 29th. A coup for Coachella. Coachella seems to be very good at arranging these type of uh, major reunions. A few years ago, they had the Stooges get together for the first time. That was a big draw. They had the, uh, one of the first big shows by the Pixies when they got back together again. Now they've got Rage Against the Machine this year as one of their big draws. You know, you look at a Bonnaroo festival in Tennessee, Jim. 
the police reunion, one of the biggest tours of the summer. They're playing only one festival. It's Bonnaroo in Tennessee on the weekend of June 14th through 17th. Lollapalooza in Chicago, the only Pearl Jam date in North America this, this summer. Year, yeah. This year will be Pearl Jam. Also, a coup uh, getting the French disco punk band uh, Daft Punk. Rarely play live, rarely come out and tour. They're playing Lollapalooza this summer. But you've got some other interesting bookings. Sasquatch Festival in uh, upstate Washington. They have a performance by the Beastie Boys. Beasties aren't doing a lot of touring these days, but they're, they're on a bill with uh, Bjork and uh, the Arcade Fire. You've got the Pitchfork Festival in Union Park in Chicago with Sonic Youth picking that site as one of only three locations around the world to do their masterpiece, Daydream Nation, front to back. So some nice major bookings for these big festivals. And increasingly, Jim, that's what they have to do to get people from out of town to come to these festivals. It's a lot of information. We're going to have some links off the soundopinions.org website to these festivals. You can go follow those and figure out who's playing where. But we wanted to get an overall perspective on this explosion of the Destination Festival in the U.S. So we turned to uh, editor-in-chief Doug Broad of Spin Magazine. Their current cover story is about the festivals. Doug, welcome to Sound Opinions. Uh, Glad to be here. Thanks. So uh, Greg and I have our thoughts about what the best and worst festivals are. But before we get down to that, let's talk a little bit in general about how the model has changed. I mean, you know, we're all of the same generation and certainly spin, you know, really blossomed and came of age in the alternative era. Mm -hmm. Used to be the festival came to us. (laughs) Lollapalooza and its many spinoffs like the Warp Tour were these interesting day long bills where you got to see a lot of bands, a lot of bang for your buck, and then it would go on to the next town. And now it's become this thing that that the industry is calling a destination festival, Mm -hmm. where it seems like a couple of promoters, some of them pretty canny, have carved up a map of the United States and each plunked down one of these big things in one different corner or the other. And, you know, people are coming to the festival as a destination. Right. Well, obviously, I think they've taken their lead from the the European festivals, like the Reading Fest, the Glastonbury Festival. I mean, they've always been destination festivals out there. They've never really had kind of a touring festival. So um, I think it just makes economical sense to do it this way, and that's what they're finding. One thing I'm noticing, Doug, is mm-hmm. that these festivals, there's, because they become destination festivals, there's sort of a premium on, okay, we need a coup. We need to get the once-in-a-lifetime type right. of performance in order to bring people to our town from around the world. But I'm thinking, Doug, I mean, as these festivals proliferate, is it becoming more difficult to sort of book them and, and get those quality bookings and sort of differentiate themselves? I mean, what is the character of these festivals that they're, that they're really separating themselves from one another? It just yeah, seems to be I, a competition for a smorgasbord of the same acts, and eventually if you have 10 or 12 of these festivals playing around the country, what's to distinguish one from the other? I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I think that it's, it's really the destination itself, and it's the location. As we know, like a lot of these festivals, whether it's Coachella, Lollapalooza, Sasquatch, even Austin City Limits. I mean, a lot of these bands, a lot of a lot of these festivals are sharing bands. You see the same bands cropping up. But you know, there there are distinctions. I mean, you look at something like Bonnaroo, where there are a lot of quote unquote indie bands kind of infiltrating that festival. You know, they've been doing that for the last few years. But it was always kind of considered this jam band festival, and now it's it's taken on like this different life. And you, I mean, I think in, in, in the case of something like Bonnaroo, it becomes this really interesting mix of artists. And, and it's, it's not the kind of thing you're going to find anywhere else. You can see jam bands, you can see indie bands, you can see harder rock bands play there now. So I think it all depends on where you want to go. Where do you stand, Doug? I mean, uh, let's, let's put your neck out a little bit here and say, uh, uh-oh, uh-oh. if you had to go to only one, 
this this summer? Which one? Oh, which one looks like your favorite? I, you know what? That's really really tough. And I, I, I would say just by by virtue of the you know having three days of like really extraordinary acts, I would say Coachella is probably one that kind of stands slightly above the others. Thank you very much, Doug Broad, editor in chief of Spin Magazine. Thanks so much, guys. All right, we put Doug Broad on the line, and he came up with Coachella as the one festival. If you're a 15-year-old kid this summer, or you're a 35-year-old kid, a <laughs> 45-year-old kid, and you want to see one day of great music, where would you go? He came up with Coachella in California. Jim, uh, I have uh, difficulty arguing that. I think it's a great lineup this year that they've got at Coachella. But if I had to pick one place to go this summer, I'm going to go to the Sasquatch Festival in uh, Washington. Uh, mm. The Gorge is a beautiful setting for a show. The problem there is logistics. You've got to fly into Seattle. Then you've got to drive two hours to the Gorge <laughs> through a, like a, a two-lane road, which is not pleasant. Yeah. But once you get there, it's, uh, it's a pretty amazing setting for a show. And I'm impressed with the lineup. I think the fact that the Beastie Boys are not playing uh, regularly this summer at all. They're not touring as far as I know. They're booked there. Uh, you get to see Bjork. You get to see uh, Arcade Fire, Interpol, Spoon, MIA, Nico Case, the Black Angels, Clinic. That's a pretty impressive lineup in a beautiful setting for a reasonable price. And I think it, we cannot leave price out of this discussion, Jim. 65 bucks per day at the uh, Sasquatch Festival in Washington. I think that's a pretty good deal. Well, if you're lineup. if you're not leaving price out of the equation, Greg, I have to say that the Pitchfork Festival in Chicago at a three-day pass for $50 that blows everyone is away. extraordinary. And the vibe is truly independent. Uh, you don't have the superstar acts. But, but listen, i, I got to make a statement. I, I'm not going to pick Pitchfork as my favorite. I, I'm still getting hate mail from last summer for saying that I hate the beach. You know, I'm anti-sun and sand. And I, you know, I'm a rock and roll animal. I want to go out at night uh-huh. when it's cold and cool and the beer is flowing. <laughs> I hate destination festivals. Many of these bands are getting 40-minute sets. Mm-hmm. And you're standing in the sun and you can't hear because the sound is often very, very bad outside. Some of these festivals do a good job, a good as in passable. Never a, an excellent job like you would in a good theater or a club. Let's face it, some of these festivals are now $250, $300 for the weekend. You know, that is 10 shows. Yeah. You know, you can go to 10 really good theater shows, see the Decemberists for $30, and enjoy them playing a 90-minute or two-hour set plus opening acts. Mm-hmm. Greg, I hate to sound like a curmudgeon, but I see this reaching a saturation point. It's it's corporatized. It's blanding out. The sooner it goes away, the whole destination phenomenon is over, the better as far as I'm concerned because it's not really about music. I don't think there's anything wrong with the destination of festival idea, Jim. I just think it's being poorly executed. I would like to see some more vision behind it, a la the original Lollapalooza, where it united a nation of people around this banner of underground music. Let's have a festival that truly pinpoints a specific area of music and really goes at it hard, rather than just throwing a hodgepodge of bands together in a field and charging money to go see it. America voted. Sanjaya, you are going home tonight. Lakeisha is safe. Greg, it's a sad day in pop music. We weep. A nation is weeping right now, Jim. <laughs> that is the sound of that bozo Sanjaya Malakar getting kicked off of American Idol the other night on uh, on Fox, the most popular TV show in the universe. 
We have never talked about it here on Sound Opinions. I want to state this emphatically up top. Why? Because this is a rock and roll talk show. We talk about interesting music of all varieties. And as far as I can tell, American Idol has nothing to do with interesting music. However, it's a cultural phenomenon that we cannot ignore. There's a bigger story here, Jim. Sanjay Malakar, who cares about him? He's not a very good singer, but he did capture the attention of a nation over the last uh, few months, amazingly enough. But what's going on here is we've got an interesting confluence of this pop audience, these teeny boppers voting for this guy, as well as another element, this subversive punk element that <laughs> yeah, is coming together that. with the pop audience <laughs> and conspiring to really save American Idol season. Because as, uh, as our next guest, Mo Ryan, the TV critic at the Chicago Tribune is going to tell us, the ratings haven't been so hot, and Sanjaya Malakar is making it an interesting season and a bigger story than just about this guy singing. Yeah, what's going to happen now that he's gone? I don't know. Let's go to Mo Ryan. Hey, Mo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Mo, what is going on with American Idol? Sanjaya Malakar is off the show. Even you were predicting that this guy could have a chance of winning the whole thing, that a nation was holding its breath thinking, <laughs> this kid is going to win the whole thing. This this sort of confluence. This talentless kid with a weird haircut. Yeah, this confluence of teeny boppers and punk subversives is going to raise this guy up and turn him into the big winner this year. But obviously that did not happen. I didn't, you know, I actually don't know that I thought he would win. I thought he'd get pretty close, closer than he did. I was actually pretty shocked that he got eliminated last night. I really thought that the whole vote for the worst campaign had reached its apex. And I was pretty surprised that that the teeny boppers and, you know, the world sent him home. You mentioned, Mo, uh, VoteForTheWorst.com. What I gather is it's a guy in a Chicago uh, basement (laughs) sitting there running this website encouraging people to vote for the lousiest singer. Is that why Sanjaya stayed on? I mean, who was voting for him? I absolutely think that was a huge factor. You cannot discount the fact that, you know, as the the season wore on a couple of weeks ago, Vote for the Worst was getting six or seven million hits a day. I mean, he was endorsed by Howard Stern, and he's been on Letterman, so yeah, he was getting a lot of traction. He was getting a ton of traffic and a ton of media interest, and I think that joined with the fact that people were kind of getting tired of Idol this season and thought Sanjaya was a joke. That, That kind of pushed that site into a huge amount of prominence, and... I think it's something that Dave Dilaturza, the founder of the site, never expected. I mean, he is just a guy in a basement with a computer, and, you know, every day he's having to add new servers to his web account because <laughs> the traffic is just off the charts. But, you but know, then, so me, some of the teenage crowd actually like the, the guy, too, right, Sanjaya? But just anecdotally speaking, every time I post about Sanjaya, for every hundred comments saying, this guy can't sing, I'll get like four, like, Sanjaya is really cool, and you don't understand. You know, so I think... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think that it's, it's a minority, obviously a committed minority, maybe a minority that should be committed, but <laughs> they couldn't really pull uh, pull their guy through this time. Does this guy actually have a future beyond the, these 15 minutes is he, that he's been enjoying the last few months? Um, I think he definitely has the 15 minutes, if not 20. I mean, he's going to get a whole lot of hair care endorsements, for, for one thing. That's, there's no doubt of that. But he can really parlay this into something. I mean, you have to remember that this is a world in which the people on road rules have made a career out of being trashy MTV reality stars for, like, some of them five and six years. Oh, I mean, this is, this is a career choice for some people. So there's no doubt in my mind that the people behind Surreal Life are going to go after him. He's going to be offered a reality <laughs> show. I can see it, his own show. Well, and, and it's interesting because some of the people who've actually been voted off American Idol have been the most successful and the most credible artists. 
I'm not a huge fan of Chris Daughtry, but he's had a number one album, yeah. and he's at least doing something uh, uh, bona fide, you know, albeit bad, you know, recycled Creed. Jennifer Hudson actually is a great artist, you know. She got booted off. She's won an Oscar. She's made great music. Mo, is there a larger picture here? Are people sick of American Idol, or are people uh, just enjoying goofy, bad performers on the show? What's going on? I think there's actually, to, to my mind, there's some erosion in the viewership. Some nights the viewership of American Idol is off by up to 10 to 14 percent over a year ago or two years ago. Really, we have to sort of look at it in the long term if it means that there are cracks starting to show in the Death Star of television. <laughs> but for all I know, it could be that Sanjaya was keeping ratings up and now they'll tumble further or that they'll rebound because people who were just thought he was a joke will come back. I mean, I think we have to look next year and see if it's the same kind of rating phenomena. To what extent do you think the vote is legit, and to what extent is it rigged? I mean, we're all three of us Chicago journalists. <laughs> we think everything is rigged. Sun came up today, right? Uh, I think, uh, daily you know what, rigged. You know what I think is rigged? I really, I can't speak to the telephone aspect of it. Obviously, every year there's some telephone glitch with the phone companies where, you know, people allegedly can't get through and whatnot. For, for all I know, they, they'll never re- release vote totals, so we'll never know how close the votes are. I think what we can say, in my opinion, is rigged for sure, is the fact that every year there are controversies with American Idol. Why do you think they let through someone like Sanjaya? Or, um, William Hung a couple of years exactly. ago. Exactly. Yeah. It's like they, they love this stuff. And to me, the most hilarious thing of this entire experience has been when the producers of American Idol called Vote for the Worst, um, Dave Delaterza's website, a mean-spirited endeavor. I mean, these are people who are putting people with mental illnesses up on TV so that we can all sit home and make fun of them and how deluded they are about their complete lack of talent. Those people, like, invented mean-spiritedness, and I think that's a cornerstone of the show, and they love letting through people who are clearly talentless, but, you know, like Antonella Barba, caused a big sensation and a scandal. And at least it seemed to have a little bit of a personality. You've got these bland, cookie-cutter voices year after year, and then when somebody was some personality, however weird it may be, at least it's a personality. Right, and I think what he did, which was extremely savvy, is once Vote for the Worst named him as their joke candidate, and once he started getting all this media attention and all this coverage for being bad, he could have decided to go back into his shell and try to, you know, be a terrific singer and, you know, try to be the next Justin Timberlake, which obviously isn't going to happen. Or he could just kind of work the controversy and be even crazier and wilder than people thought he was. Well, even the song choice of his last song, Let's Give Him Something to Talk About, you yeah, know, he exactly. was clearly commenting, this guy, the guy might be a genius. Who knows? I mean, hey, people with less talent have but become sorry, stars, I, right? I can't, you know, as much as he seems like a nice kid and everything, I can't forgive him for butchering Ain't No Mountain High Enough and you really got me by the kink. Which has two notes, and he missed them both. Yeah, yeah, he missed both notes, and you really got me. Maureen Ryan, TV critic at the Tribune. Thank you, Mo, for thanks. giving us some perspective. Hey, thanks a lot. Anytime. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. We feature your feedback regularly on the show. Give us a call, 1-888-859-1800, or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. In a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, our conversation with producer, record executive, concert promoter, and raconteur, Joe Boyd.
You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We are hearing a bit of one of my all-time favorite singles in rock history. It's called My White Bicycle. It was from the band Tomorrow, which featured a young Steve Howe on guitar, later of Yes. It came out in 1967, and it was uh, a really influential early bit of British psychedelia. It uh, gives the title to the new book by Joe Boyd, which is called White Bicycles, Making Music in the 1960s. Boyd is one of those fascinating behind-the-scenes, in-the-shadows characters that you run into in rock and roll who always seem to be in the right place at the right time. He has worked with Pink Floyd, The Incredible String Band, Fairport Convention, Bob Dylan, Nick Drake, and the list goes on and on. And he remembers it, Jim. That's the amazing thing. He lived through it, and he remembers it. (laughs) We can't say that about all our 60s icons. Uh, He was there... And he remembers Joe Boyd, promoter, producer, band manager, club owner for a short time. We had an opportunity to talk to him recently and asked him what it was about that song and that time period in England in 67 that inspired the title of his new book. I was running a club. Uh, We used to rent an Irish dance hall once a week on Friday nights. And it was called UFO or UFO. And it was kind of, you know, the family dog, psychedelic ballroom you know, equivalent in London. It only lasted for about nine months, but it had a great run for a while. And the spring of 1967 was a very wonderful and interesting time because, uh, you know, the whole scene was changing so fast. And Tomorrow had been just a kind of pop group. But that spring, some of the group, not necessarily Keith, but the rest of the group, I think, started changing their chemical intake and their music started changing, and it got more and more wacky and psychedelic. And anyway, I heard them at a pop club called Blazes and, and invited them to play at UFO, and the audience just loved them. And um, on the night of June 30th, 1967, they played on this fantastic night where it was in the middle of the Stones bust, and my partner, John Hopkins, had been arrested and sentenced to prison, and there was this huge tension and clash going on. And Twink, who was the drummer of Tomorrow, led us out around in a kind of protest march through the center of London in the middle of the night. <laughs> and then they got back, we got back to the club at 4.30 in the morning, and they played the greatest set I ever heard at UFO. Mm. And it was just a great, great moment. But in retrospect everything started to go downhill from there on. From that point so, on. And they, they sang this song called, uh, their signature song was called My White Bicycle. And it was all about the provos in Amsterdam giving away these free bicycles to everybody in the city and painting them white. And so I say in the book that by the end of 1967, 
the white bicycles in Amsterdam had mostly been stolen and repainted. And it's a, <laughs> a bit of a heavy-handed metaphor. <laughs> well, I was thinking of the more uh, optimistic uh, kind of metaphor, too. I mean, this idea that, you know, because what a neat idea. We, we leave these white bicycles, and, and I've ridden it to my destination, and maybe you can pick it up now and ride wherever you want. Your, your uh, career has been sort of Zelig-like in the fact that uh, that you've often been in the most extraordinary places at exactly the right time by chance, like a white bicycle. I was wondering if you were thinking a little of that too. Not really. I don't. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I sort of. That's a good theory, though, Jim. <laughs> it sounded good. Yeah. Very yeah. rock criticy, yeah. though. Before we leave UFO, we definitely have to point out that uh, this was an extraordinary run of uh, shows in this nine-month period that you're talking about, uh, Joe Boyd. Uh, Soft Machine played there. You had uh, the Move playing there. Uh, the Crazy World of Arthur Brown. Uh, Denny Lane. The Pretty Things. Um, Brokel Harem on the night that Whiter Shade of Pale was released. Mm. Pretty extraordinary stuff. And, of course, Pink Floyd. Right. That alone, that would put you in the history books there, Joe. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, kind of at the ground floor of of one of the greatest bands of all time. And uh, UFO was kind of their home base. I mean, they went from basically a band that nobody knew about to a band that was... uh, about to emerge into superstar status with pretty much within that nine-month period, right? I mean, it was, it was pretty oh, absolutely. sudden. Yeah. Give us a sense of what UFO was like, the atmosphere inside that club, and then what was it like when Pink Floyd would perform there? UFO was a basement, low-ceilinged Irish dance hall, wooden floor, and some hallways off where they served soft drinks and things like that. And at 10, we opened at 10.30, and we shut at 6 in the morning when the subway started running. And freaks just poured down the stairway. And uh, <laughs> there were light shows going on in the corners. There was uh, a low stage. Uh, we used to show films between sets by groups, uh, W.C. Fields shorts and Kurosawa samurai films. And we'd play records. Yoko Ono used to come down and put on events, happenings. <laughs> It was an incredible atmosphere. If one were so inclined to sample some lysergic acid diethylamide, the 25th synthesis thereof, how easy was it to find a UFO? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had nothing to do with that, of course. No, no, but, no. So, no. <laughs> but my, my security staff reportedly, as I understand it uh, after the fact, uh, were pretty good, uh, had a pretty good supply in their back pocket. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what happened was the Pink Floyd, I started producing the Pink Floyd, and unfortunately, I just produced the one record because EMI then signed them and said, uh, we want the, them to use our studios, our producers, et cetera, et cetera. But that record got on the radio. And from that point on in March, late March of 67, UFO was swamped by people who had been drawn to what we were doing through Pink Floyd, through that record, Arnold Lane. Arnold Lane. Mm-hmm.
Now, this was the uh, the height of the Sid Barrett era. Barrett obviously was in the band for a very short time, but he was the driving force in that band. Um, describe the dynamic of, of the band at the time when Barrett was in it. Well, Sid wrote all, all the songs. I mean, he... Um he was a wonderful songwriter. I mean, if you listen to those songs, they're so clever. They're so full of narrative drama and wordplay and sort of music hall songs almost, you know, very tuneful and witty. Um, and, and yet they were wonderful to use as a basis for improvisation. And I, I describe in the book at one point that, uh, you know, the melodies, they'd set off on these kind of spaceship excursions from what you know, I kind of image in my mind as a the fertile green planet of Sid's <laughs> melodic songs, and they'd go out on this spaceship wandering around into the void, and then they'd return, and it was always very reassuring when they got back to the home planet, you know, when you'd hear the melody suddenly again, and Sid would step up to the mic and sing. One of the things about the Floyd, though, was that they were very... Um, self-effacing in a way. On stage, they had this light show, all these blobs of purple and blue and green lights playing across the stage. So you couldn't really make out faces very clearly. And they were all, my image of the Floyd on stage is they're all looking down at their instruments very seriously. No one was projecting much of a personality. But, mm -hmm. but Sid's personality shone through even that because he had these sort of sparkling dark eyes and he was very good looking and girls loved him and you know he, he was quite a character even without trying he became a kind of uh, iconic figure mm -hmm. you, you have a unique perspective on this too Joe because um, you were born in the US uh, born in Boston uh, graduated from Harvard in 64 and spent most of your time in England uh, thereafter um, what was your perspective on Pink Floyd and the psychedelic movement uh, as centered at the UFO Club versus what was happening in the States at the time in, in San Francisco with the Air, Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead and bands like that. Did you see a distinction uh, between the styles of psychedelia that were, were coming up and were they influencing each other in any way that you could detect? I always felt that English groups and American groups were, there was one fundamental difference is that American musicians generally were much better, I mean, quote, better, unquote, in the sense that they were more fluent. They could, I mean, I think most of the guys in The Grateful Dead could play lots of different kinds of music. They were quite deft. And the English musicians, there was no tradition of jamming, no tradition of just getting together and playing. There were no bars where you did that. There were no coffee houses. There was nothing, none of those sort of social phenomena. Most English groups were art students, who just formed a group and decided to pick up an instrument and learn how to play the particular tunes and the music that that group was playing. And so they weren't as good, but their amateurishness allowed them to invent things in a very eccentric way. So there was a lot more originality in some ways, I think. Mm -hmm. if, you look, if you analyze The Grateful Dead and Big Brother and The Holding Company, they're kind of just like, you know, they looked weird and they had weird artwork and they were part of a very psychedelic scene, but their music was pretty straightforward blues, you know, sort of rhythm and blues, country rock. Well, she went up to a room and she sang a faithful tune And I'm going where those chilly winds don't blow Winds don't
the English stuff is very, uh, you know, much more unusual. I mean, I think the Doors and the Jefferson Airplane are much more unusual in their own way. But San Francisco certainly spawned a lot of groups that were just, you know, out of the R&B, jug band, skiffle band, country rock tradition. Absolutely. I am with you, Joe. Those groups were just not that special, and yet San Francisco is always held up as the paradigm of that era, 66, 67. Yet so many bands today are pulling more from the British bands during the psychedelic period. Early Pink Floyd, The Soft Machine, uh, or another band you worked with, Fairport Convention. Oh, absolutely. We're talking to Joe Boyd here on Sound Opinions, producer, promoter, author of a new book called White Bicycles. Joe, let's talk a little bit about Fairport Convention. You were the guy who helped bring singer... Sandy Denny in to work with the band for their second album. You talk about it in the book. Uh, you were hoping that Sandy Denny and the guitarist Richard Thompson were going to get along, but you weren't quite sure if that was going to happen, right? Well, I was very worried about that because I had fantasized about maybe Sandy singing with Fairport Convention, and I thought, nah, it'll never work. She's too... I mean, they, they were from very similar backgrounds. I mean, I had the experience as an American in England very often of meeting people and thinking oh, this person would really get along with that person. They both have the same interests. Let's bring them together. And then the evening would fall flat. And I realized later, hey, maybe it's because they're from different classes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, a working class person, an upper middle class person who didn't get along. But Sandy and Richard were very much from the same background, you know, suburban grammar school, um, you know, middle class background. But Sandy was a loud, extrovert, big, larger-than-life character who, you know, would break things and curse and shout and drink <laughs> a lot. And, you know, in the Fairport, we're all very timid, sort of well-behaved, respectful, quiet boys, you know. And mm-hmm. I was afraid that Sandy would eat them alive. <laughs> but, in fact, when she did join the group, um, she was so in awe of Richard's musicality, you know, she... It was as if she died and gone to heaven to have Richard playing guitar behind her singing. And so she was tremendously deferential to Richard. And they just got along, they had so much respect for each other that the personality difference didn't really matter. Tomorrow, at this hour, she will be far away Much farther than these islands for the lonely fathering day Describe sort of an epiphany moment when you saw Richard play guitar for the first time. I think he was, what, about 17? Um, What was he doing that was different from all the other... I mean, there was every kid in England who wanted to be a rock star. I mean, they were all playing guitars. I mean, there was extraordinary guitar players. What made him different from all these other guitarists at the time? In retrospect, I think what is unique about Richard and what was always unique about Richard is that he's absorbed so much of rock and roll guitar from a rhythmic point of view and a point of view of energy. He loves Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, his rhythmic attack on the guitar sometimes is very much like Jerry Lee Lewis's left hand, you know. Mm -hmm. And he has, so he has all that context and yet when you analyze what he's playing, he never plays the blues. 
He's the only rock and roll guitar player who's absolutely a rock and roll guitar player who doesn't play blue notes. His frame of reference is Scottish bagpipes more than Mississippi blues. Yeah, yeah. And yet he does it with a kind of attack and, a, and, a, and an approach which is totally rock and roll. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to continue our conversation with Joe Boyd and talk about discovering and working with Nick Drake. And later on, we're going to review the new album from indie darling Connor Oberst and his band Bright Eyes. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. In a moment, we're going to review the new album from Omaha's Bright Eyes. But first, a bit more of our conversation with producer, promoter, 60 survivor, and new author, Joe Boyd. Joe, the other uh, big production job we'd love to talk to you about is Nick Drake, discovering him, working with him on, uh, on his records. I got to hear you speak with Ed Ward at uh, South by Southwest, and... Uh, you told a great story about stumbling upon Nick Drake and, and John Cale later discovering Nick Drake. Uh, the John Cale story is funny because John is, I don't know if you ever interviewed John. but Many <laughs> times, yeah, we've had him here. And right. it's always a treat. Right. You know, I, I just would like to listen to John read the phone book. <laughs> sure. It's that Welsh well, he's, voice. I mean, his, his Welsh accent is great. And he, um, he came over to London at my invitation to work on a record by Nico. We were doing this record called Desert Shore. And it was always entertaining. And, and um, John one day kind of leaned back, put his feet up on the console and sort of looked at me and John Wood, the engineer who I always worked with, um, kind of rather regally and said, so what else are you working on? Play me something else. Play me, in, you know, show me something interesting. <laughs> tell, <laughs> tell me what else you're doing. Because he knew that I was constantly in the studio even when I wasn't in there with him. And then we put on Nick Drake. And John just sat up in his chair and he said, who the hell is this? Where did he come from? Who is he? What, you know? And I started talking. He said, look, don't give me all that. Where is he now? I want to go meet him. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so I rang up Nick. I said, do you know, do you know who John Cale is? He said, yeah, <laughs> I think so. And I said, well, he's on his way over. <laughs> <laughs> and John rang me the next morning. And we were supposed to be mixing Nico the next day. We'd scheduled a mix for the whole day, so the studio was ours anyway. And John rang me at 9 o'clock in the morning or something and said, uh, 
okay, I'll need a B3, I'll need a clavichord, I'll need a bass amp, I'll need a pickup for the viola, I'll need a, you know, all this list, this shopping list of rental equipment. And he said, I need it there by noon. You know, I said, but we're supposed to mix. No, 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 we're not, not mixing Nico. We're recording with Nick. <laughs> and so, you know, he arrived in with Nick in tow, and they proceeded to cut Northern Sky and fly that day. Mm-hmm. Well. I never felt magic crazy this. I never saw moons knew the meaning of the sea. I never held emotion in the palm of my hand I felt sweet breezes in the top of a tree But now you're here Bright in my northern sky Joe, I gotta ask you though, um, you know, Drake uh, coming into the pub popular consciousness uh, primarily through uh, the auspices of a TV ad. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Well, two things. First of all, before the ad, he was already surging up in terms of sales. Every year we'd sell another five or 10,000 more records than we'd sold the year before. Well, and Hannibal had done that incredible box set mm-hmm. a couple of years yeah. before the Pink Moon ad, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, bought, yeah, yeah. I bought that on vinyl, and then when it came out on CD, I bought it again on CD. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was all kind of happening. But then, you know, we got this suggestion that Nick's music should be used in this car commercial. And, you know, I was sort of between Gabrielle, Nick's sister, and I. We were the ones who would kind of decide things like that. And my first impulse was, no way, you know, you must be joking. And then they sent me the storyboard and with all the text and every, everything. And I called up somebody that was connected with it, somebody from the producer's office or something. And I said, let me get this straight. You mean there's no voiceover? At no point in this ad from the first frame to the last is there going to be a voice saying, now at your VW dealers, you know, <laughs> yeah, whatever, yeah. with Nick's music under it. And they said, that's right. There will be no voiceover. The only sound you will hear in the entire commercial, aside from a couple of sound effects, crunching gravel, you know, and a slam of a car door, will be Nick. And at that point, I said, hmm. <laughs> And uh, I talked to Gabrielle about it, and we decided, well, yeah. I mean, Nick wanted to be successful. He wanted people to hear his music. So I written on a soil say Bingo Moon is on his way. None of you stand so tall. Bingo Moon, and I get you. irony, though, is, though, that, that that last album, Joe, was the one that he recorded right when he was on the brink. I mean, everything I've ever read about the Pink Moon sessions, he was deep, deep, deep in a dark hole of depression. Uh, and, 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 you know, it isn't the happier records that, that preceded. No, 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 no. And somebody told me the other day, uh, somebody who came to one of the readings, you know, that uh, 
they have a friend who's a big fan of Nick Drake but only has Pink Moon. And they sat this person down and played them brighter later. And they were shocked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's all this? These orchestras (laughs) and stuff. What's all that about? Yeah. Their image of Nick was just a voice and a guitar. But the fact is, you know, Pink Moon is a wonderful record. Yeah. And, you know, the songs are great. Nick's guitar playing is fantastic. And and uh, the Pink Moon sessions were, I wasn't there. I didn't produce it. John Wood produced it. But uh, then John and I were together in the studio with Nick when he did the last session, which includes Black Eyed Dog and Hanging on a Star and songs like that, which are desolate terrible, gloomy, ominous songs. And Nick was in such bad shape, he couldn't even sing and play the guitar at the same time. But even that, you know, just listening to it, coming upon it and listening to it, the music is extraordinary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Joe Boyd. Uh, It's been a pleasure having you on Sound Opinions, Joe. Thank you. Another big idea to get you raised. Make a plan to love me. Make a plan to love me sometimes. That is Make a Plan to Love Me from the new album by Bright Eyes called Casadega. Bright Eyes basically a one-man band, a vehicle for singer-songwriter Connor Oberst. A uh, Nebraska artist, only 27 years old, has been making records for basically half his life, since he was an early teen. Yeah, 14. Started putting out records, uh, cassettes and now CDs. The reason that the Saddle Creek label in Omaha, Nebraska was formed, essentially, was to put out records by this guy. And they've since become one of the leading independent labels in the world. The last two Bright Eyes records, and I mentioned the last two because they were released on the same day in uh, 2005, I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning, and Digital Ash in a Digital Urn, have sold a combined 640,000 copies in North America alone. That's pretty astonishing for an independent artist who basically gets no commercial radio airplay, no MTV play, and has boycotted. Uh, Live Nation slash Clear Channel concert venues. So he he's re- refuses to play any Live yeah. Nation venue. Yeah, he is uh, you know anti mainstream to the max, and here he is selling all these records. Now he's coming out with Casadega. More attention than ever being paid to this record, despite the fact that he is an, on, an indie label on a supposed indie label recording budget. A very sumptuous recording, the most sumptuous of his career, as you can hear by the orchestrations on that song we just played. The other thing that comes through in this record are the uh, folk and uh, country uh, influences that started to show up on I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning in 2005. Uh, You can hear this very clearly on the song we're going to play. We're going to come back and review the record, but first, let's hear If the Brakeman Turns My Way from Bright Eyes. When panic grips your body and your heart's a hummingbird Raven thoughts black in your mind Till you're breathing in reverse And all your friends and senators 
mean well, but make it worse. Every assurance just magnifies the doubt. Better find yourself a place to level out. Got a cricket for a conscience. Always looks the other way. A cocaine soul starts seeming like an empty cabaret. Hey, where are all the dancers gone? Now the music doesn't play. Tried to listen to the river, but you couldn't shut your mouth. Better take a little time. I never thought of running. My feet just led the way. Mix of signals, bullet train, cause a switch that. That is If the Breakman Turns My Way by Connor Oberst, a.k.a. Bright Eyes. Gets a lot of help on this record, uh, Greg. Casadega is the name of the record. Jillian Welch uh, is on this record. M. Ward is on this record. A lot of the tortoise guys, because part of it was recorded at uh, Chicago's Soma Studio. Oberst has had two curses throughout his career. He has been branded the New Dylan <laughs> yeah. by people without even any irony. I mean, that is the, one of the worst cliches in rock mm-hmm. criticism. You know, you should never, ever use that again. People People throw this at him, and this would be, therefore, his basement tape's turn. You know, this is the more uh, rootsy, folky album. And also, you know, people have been hyping him as a wonderkind since he was 14. Neither of those is his fault. What has been his fault is a sort of so earnest, it's smug, superior... I am the poet, political activist yeah. attitude. Look, he puts his money where his mouth is. He mm-hmm. doesn't want to play Clear Channel Live Nation venues because they charge too much money and they treat fans poorly, in his opinion, so he plays independently. And, you know, he's against the war. Okay, we, we like that. But there's still a smugness and earnestness and I'm the poet and I'm going to tell you why the war is bad. Lines that just, they make me cringe every time I hear them. My current least favorite is, uh, I had a lengthy discussion about the power of myth with a postmodern author who didn't exist. And it's like, oh, man. But you know what? For the first time, he's ratcheted down those emo histrionics. And it's quieter. Everybody's lauding this guy as a wordsmith. But what he really is is a great pop craftsman. There are some really just beautiful melodies on this. I love that song, Make a Plan to Love Me. I love the song Classic Cars, where he's talking about uh, having a crush on an older woman, a cougar, if you will. And, you know, she's into classic cars and this whole, you know, he's kind of comparing her to the classic car. And, again, the melody is what really makes it work. You can be like those hordes of emo kids in their cardigans who sit there and parse this guy's lyrics, or you can just enjoy some pretty sharp pop songwriting. He's been cast in either one of two camps. He's the heart and throat visionary or he's this overwrought drama queen. 
And I think every one of his records has had, you know, evidence of both on it. Yeah. I think the equation gets more towards the uh, the heart and throat guy that you can believe in yeah. uh, on this record. As he said, he has dialed it down. Those vocal tics, those really annoying, quivering, hyper-emotional vocals have toned down a little bit. He seems at ease on a lot of these songs. You know, it's more conversational. The uh, Basement Tapes analogy is not a bad one in this case because the music does seem to be a little bit more organic. And that way, at the same time, it's really orchestrated. I mean, the orchestrations have never been more pronounced. But his vocal performances within that seem a lot more natural, mm. a lot more comfortable. As a lyricist, he has not really improved. <laughs> As I listen to these songs and I hear what's coming out of his mouth, I go, yeah, I that's know. just tripe, man. It's I just know. one cliche after another and really, really overwrought stuff. As he's turned away from being sort of this inward-looking artist crying about you know the breakups that he's had and the innocence yeah. lost, and now he's looking outward at the world, I'm going, no, no, go back to writing songs about heartbreak because uh, this uh, stuff uh, about uh, what's happening in the world is just driving I'll, me I'll nuts. I'll quote you another one. Little soldier, little insect, you know war, <laughs> it has no heart. It will kill you in the sunshine or kill you in the dark. And it's like, oh. I, I think, but again, if you can tune that out, some of the hooks are really good. I, I, look, we rate things on buy it, mm-hmm. burn it, trash it. This has been getting a lot of praise on radio and on uh, the mainstream media. I, I can't say you should go out and buy this, but this is a burn it record. Parts of it are really, really beautiful and, and very uh, hook filled. And I think they, you know, will reward you listening to them. I think he's getting closer to where he's going to be the artist that everybody says he is. But he's not there yet. That line, I'm going to find myself somewhere to level out, is kind of like a promise to himself. Sooner Mm -hmm. or later, I'm going to get there. But this album, it's not quite there yet. It's a burn it record. All right. That's a double burn it from both of us then, Greg. What have we got on the show next week? We have Tom Morello, Jim, who is known most famously for his roles in the band Rage Against the Machine, which is just now reuniting and playing the Coachella Music Festival and a couple of other big dates this summer, and Audio Slave. But really, the most intriguing thing about him right now is his new guys as the Night Watchman, solo acoustic protest singer. We're going to have a conversation with him and a live performance. Got some thank yous to say. As always, Sound Opinions is produced by the ace team of Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our fearless leader and executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia, who uh, Joe Boyd swears was that one of the big love-ins in London 67. I think there's a picture of Tori at that love-in in Joe's book, actually. The beads and the caftan. In case you've missed any of our recent shows, here's a record we reviewed on Sound Opinions. Been on both sides of the track. You can say I changed the game. A lot of people try to get in my lane. Everybody asking me the same old thing. What they say? That is O Timbaland from Timbaland, extolling himself. Lead track on his fifth studio record, Timbaland presents Shock Value. I'm a real producer, and you just a piano man. Your songs don't have the charts. I heard them. shouldn't rap. He is not a good rapper, he's even worse as a singer, and even more disappointing than being a mediocre talent, Timbaland has nothing to say. Timbaland's personality is kind of depressing on this record. In the past, he'd come across as sort of this cuddly, otherworldly kind of guy. This one, he's petulant, self-aggrandizing. I mean, some very unattractive traits are coming out in this record. I think this is a burn-it record at best, maybe even a trash-it. I, I think it's a trash-it, Jim. It's, it's just a huge disappointment. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. 
messages. Hi, my name is Julia, and I'm calling from Palos Heights, Illinois. I'm just calling to let you guys know your show is great. It really opened my eyes to accept Leonard Skinner a lot more than just 70s Confederate band with like a good song or two by just listening really to the lyrics that Greg Cott had mentioned. And I'll definitely be listening a lot closer to the song. Keep up the great work. Thanks. Hi, this is John Kutch from Harvard, Illinois. I just want to say what the form of hypocrisy took place I'm sure you guys are all for open source and getting rid of DRM. And then when Steve Jobs goes taking some baby steps to get rid of DRM, you rip on him. What is he doing with the EMI president? Dare he, you know, take so much spotlight for this? Well, guys, that's his job. He's the CEO, the head cheerleader, and he's at least doing what you'd hope. If you get what you ask for, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Hopefully I didn't mix any metaphors. Thank you for listening to my little rant there. It's an unlimited supply, and there is no reason why. I tell you, it was all a crime. They only did it because of fame. Who? EMI. 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 Hey there, this is Bob Boylan. I work at uh, NPR for a show called All Songs Considered. I love your podcast. Uh, you do just about the best podcast out there, so thanks. Uh, a couple of things I thought you missed the mark on. Uh, personally, I think you missed the mark on the Steve Jobs EMI stuff, especially the pricing and the Beatles stuff. Sure, who wants to see prices go up 30 cents? But the price of an album didn't change. For 10 bucks, you can get a, uh, a whole album, uh, 256 bit rate, no DRM. That's pretty good. It'll sound wonderful, last forever and it's yours. Uh, the other thing is, on the Apple Beatles stuff, I'm not even sure that this stuff is digitized. In a conversation recently that I did with Giles Martin back when the Love Record came out, um, he said he was the first person to dump all the stuff into, into Pro Tools in a digi digital system. I don't know that they've actually remastered any of the, be it Abbey Road or the White Album. I think more of that is what we're waiting on more than anything. So, just a thought, and uh, thanks for a great show. I really love it. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.